Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Joel Karsten, author of Straw Bale Gardens. Joel, how did you get into straw bale gardening? Well, it's, um, it sort of started about 22, 23 years ago when I graduated from college and I bought my first house. And I realized once I bought the house that I didn't have much soil uh, in the property that I bought. It only had about an inch of of topsoil over top of what I call construction dirt underneath. Oh, yeah. And, and, yeah, a lot of people end up in that situation, unfortunately. And uh, the other unfortunate thing is I just graduated college, and I just bought a house, so I didn't have any, any extra money to be able to yep. build raised beds, which is what a normal gardener would do. You just build raised garden beds and, and start vegetable gardening. Mm-hmm. But I, I remembered how when I was a kid, I grew up on a dairy farm, and we used to have extra bales of straw that would get broken, the string would get broken, and Dad would just throw them up against the barn, and halfway through the summer, great big weeds would start growing out of those decomposing bales. And I thought, you know, I don't have money to build raised beds, but I can certainly get my hands on some straw bales. So I, I started out just with a few straw bales, um, seeing whether it would work, uh, planting Instead of having thistles grow out of the bales, I planted tomatoes in the bales and some other crops. And to my amazement and to others' amazement as well, it worked really, really well. And so just by sort of perfecting a a method for getting the plants to stand upright and making sure that they got plenty of water and, and that we could get those bales to begin that decomposition faster than what they would in, in nature, you know, if you just left them up against the barn outside, um, we wanted to speed that process up, make it happen a little bit faster. So by perfecting that over the over the years, um, it got to be a really great method to use for if you didn't have super soil, to be able to get a great vegetable crop out of um, a very simple process. At one of our schools, the Master Gardeners, I think, had a project where they just put the bales right over the macadam outside the mm-hmm. tarmac and, and grew from there. Of course, in our climate, that's a little hot, you know, the, yeah. the dark surface. And um, here in Georgia, it's not unusual for us to have 100-degree days. Yeah. And you're in Minnesota, so you don't get those, do you? Or do you? Well, we get a couple. Usually it gets to 100 once or twice during the summer, but not not like you guys get, certainly. Um, but, now, you know, what are the, 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 Go ahead. What are the advantages over in-ground versus regular raised beds? Besides the obvious well, one is that you don't have to bend over so far, which yeah. is especially nice if you're growing strawberries. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And Or if you have difficulty accessing ground level, you know, if you happen to use a wheelchair to get around, or um, as my grandma used to say when she became a seasoned gardener, uh, a senior gardener, um, you know, getting down on the ground is easy. It's getting back up. That's where the trouble comes in. And it, yes. it made it really easy just to be able to bend over to, to waist height. So people who do who garden this way will, will discover that they can garden a lot longer, you know, later into life. But there are some other real advantages. Yeah, you have to remember that when you garden in the soil, you're using that same substrate year after year after year, and you're going to get an accumulation of disease and insects problems and fungal issues in that soil, many of which are soil-borne. So they'll overwinter in that soil from one year to the next. And if you use the same garden plot year after year, you're going to get accumulation of these problems, particularly if you're not rotating crops. Well, for some people, they don't have enough space to be able to do a lot of crop rotation. You know, they have a tiny area that gets full sun during the day, and that's their spot where they have their garden. And your soil just 
sort of becomes depleted. Even if you're adding organic material, even if you're keeping the fertility levels up, it, it becomes depleted just because it's overused and it gets concentrations of these disease and insect issues. Straw bales bring in brand new, I, I call it virgin soil, inside this bale every year. Now, the inside of that bale is going to become, very quickly, is going to become brand new soil. So we're, we're not really, the roots, by the time the roots of the plants get down in the middle of that bale, the inside of that bale has really become soil. It's no longer straw at that point. Uh, we're going to encourage that bacteria growth early in the season, and, and that fast colonization by that bacteria of the bale begins to consume the straw and essentially turns it into soil, along with worms and insects and fungi and mold and all the other things that Mother Nature uses to help decompose living things back into soil. All of those are working together on that bale to create that brand new soil. So now when we put our plants in there, we don't have any pre-existing disease, pre-existing insect problems, and we should have very few weed issues in that bale. Um, you know, when the straw is harvested, they remove the seeds from the oats or the wheat or the barley, and what remains is just the stalks. So there shouldn't be a source of seed inside that bale that sprouts. Now, once in a while, you get a few oats or wheat seeds left over, and those will sprout, and you pluck those out. But that's it for the rest of the season for in terms of weeding. Um, so there's no transient weed seeds that have entered your garden like they do when you bring in manure or if you bring in compost that's not been well conditioned sometimes it'll still have viable seeds in it and you get you know watermelon sprouts coming up everywhere from your watermelon seeds from your compost bin um you don't have to worry about that with strawberries because there there is no source of seeds and i can verify that a bad load of manure or compost is the worst thing in the world for gardening, for a gardener. I got, um, yeah. one year I brought in a load of horse manure that looked like it was pretty well composted, yeah. only it was infested with Johnson grass. Yeah. That was nearly well, 30 years ago, and I still yeah. have Johnson grass in my garden. And horses are one of the worst. And if you think they about are. I always talk to people, particularly people who are not, are not from the farm, who are not, you know, country people. If you think about the animal that's consuming that vegetation. So when a cow eats something, Cows are meant to produce milk, and they're meant to produce meat, so they're very efficient at digesting their food. They have four stomachs, and they process those seeds to get all the nutrients out. So many of the nutrients that pass through the cow, many of the seeds have been completely uh, rendered inert, essentially, because all the nutrients have been taken out. But a horse, a horse is not meant for meat production at all. Um, so a horse will eat something, and 20 minutes later it comes out the other end, and those seeds are perfectly viable. So um, chickens are a good example. Chickens consume whatever they consume. They get all of the nutrients out of it because they have a very fast rate of gain. They gain weight really quickly, and they do that because they're very efficient users of food. So their manure, chicken manure, is very good manure. You know, it tends to be pretty weed-free, and, and um, it tends to be really good for gardening. Whereas horse manure is not quite as good. So. Well, and those of us that go back quite a number of years to back when there were horses, more horses around, and after the horses would pass by uh, your street, all the sparrows would come and pick out the seeds from it. There were so exactly. many seeds left in it. You're exactly so. right. Another good example. Is there, are there any manures that you shouldn't use? Um, well, we always suggest that you never use manure from any animals that eat meat. 
you know, any carnivores, anything that's a carnivore that, that eats meat in any way, some, never cat or dog or, you know, um, it, it essentially or anything pig. that would consume that would consume meat. Well, pigs normally are grain-fed, so pig manure is usually is fine. Um, it takes a while. It's one of the stinkier of the manures, so that means it has lots of nitrogen in it, kind of like chicken manure. I, you know, the stinkier manure is, the more nitrogen concentration it has in it. Um, but they can. Um, most of those manures could be used if they're if they're composted well. You know, you want to leave manure. My grandma always said, you never use a manure if it still stinks. You want to leave it out, let it compost until it takes on sort of the characteristics of a nice, rich, black topsoil uh, where it's completely decomposed and, and, you know, all the bacteria has worked its way. The bad bacteria, E. coli and things have worked their way out of that manure. So for chicken manure, I tell people six to 12 weeks of composting before you use it, um, and, it'll, and it'll be fine at that point. Well, that's a good thing for our listeners to know because sometimes we can get a good deal on manure depending on where you live, and it can be awfully expensive to buy fertilizer all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you just want to be careful for fresh manure. Anything you know, that's still stinky because, you know, we don't want to, especially on food crops, we don't want to add anything that has a potential or a risk to spread E. coli. We also have to know what the animal has been fed, if it's horse or cow manure, because of the persistent herbicides that we have now. Yeah, it's particularly yeah, a problem with horse manure. Cloppy rallids are one of the herbicides that, that can linger in, particularly in hay crops, not so much in your small cereal grains, but in, in hay crops. Um, and it's, it is off-label use for a farmer to have used that, um, to use that type of herbicide and then pass that grain or that alfalfa crop off to someone who they know is going to have fed it to livestock whose manure is then going to be used in a garden. So I know that's a long trail to get there, but that's um, specifically labeled. So if that ever happens, there's liability there that goes, you know, through the chain of, of use. And farmers can risk losing their ability to buy and use these chemicals, these, these insecticides, these pesticides, in particular these herbicides, they can lose their license to be able to buy those if they use them off-label. So, you know, we need to make be, be persistent and follow up if we if we see damage in our garden and we anticipate it's coming from that to to be able to follow up with the source of that um, that straw or mulch or manure that you used in your garden is something we should do as gardeners to to help you know, solve this problem. You know, if you get to the root of the problem, a lot of times people will take it more serious and they won't pass off their manure as being good for a garden. That's a good thing for people to know and to be aware of. Now, Joel, you mentioned a couple of other kinds of straw, and one of the things that we get a lot of questions of when I work the help desk at the Master Gardener um, is booth is uh, worrying about what kinds of straw people can use. You mentioned a couple others. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned also mentioned alfalfa. Now, doesn't alfalfa break down too fast? Well, um, yeah, it, it, alfalfa will decompose. Actually, early on, it's harder to get it to begin the decomposition process because it's a little coarser, and it doesn't hold moisture quite as well as straw does. But once it begins the process of breaking down, 
alfalfa has naturally has a lot of nitrogen in it, has more nitrogen in it than your cereal grain straws will have in it. So once it begins the process of decomposing, then it decomposes more quickly. So it's a, it's, it's sort of a catch-22. Um, we, we recommend to people that you start looking, start by looking for small grain straw, you know, oats, wheat, barley, rice, any of the cereal grain crop straws, because they're going to be cleanest. They're going to have the fewest seeds in them, where if you use a hay crop, this could be baled grass. Um, for people on the coast, it could be um, what they call salt hay, uh, which is uh, a type of grass that gets baled up and used as a fodder, uh, you know, food for livestock. As long as the seed heads in those gra- bales of grass are not mature, then the seeds aren't going to sprout. But if you get grass that's harvested late and it's mature and the seeds are mature and you bale that up, now you're going to use that bale of hay for gardening. You're going to water and fertilize that bale. Guess what happens to all those mature seeds in that bale? They all have a chia pet. (laughs) And you have a chia pet growing in your garden, exactly. Um, So, you know, that's the only thing I caution people is, is if you're going to use a bale of hay, make sure that it's come from, you know, an early crop or a late crop, but it doesn't have mature seed heads. heads. It's going to be easy to see. Just look in the bale. I discourage people from using um, pine straw bales. I get that question a lot. Um, We we have to take a break right now, but when you come back, I want to find out why we can't use pine straw, because we have a lot of pine straw here in the south. We'll be right back after this. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuffs Foodlink was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodlink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodlink.com, connecting farm to fork. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K Steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is AmericasWebRadio.com. The best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Joel Karsten, the author of Straw Bale Gardening. And right before the break, um, Joel, you mentioned pine straw. And for those of us in the South, 
Pine straw is probably the easiest for most people to come by. It's in all of the big box stores and the garden centers and things like that. So why not use pine straw? Well, the, the problem with pine straw is as it decomposes, it has a, a very acidic nature, and your bales will become very acidic. Now, there are maybe some crops that would thrive in that environment, but in general, most of our vegetable crops, our food crops, are going to like a pH you know, anywhere from 6 to 7.5, something like that. So approximately neutral, neutral being 7, of course, on the pH scale. Um, if you use pine straw, it's going to decompose and it's going to become very acidic inside that bale. So there's only a few crops that, you know, blueberries come to mind that would probably thrive in that environment. Um, but, but most of your vegetables, yes, but other, other vegetable crops are probably not going to do, I, I know are not going to do very well. I've tested a couple of bales of pine straw and it just doesn't work very well. Now, with that being said, um, you'll see, and I don't know if you've, you know, I'm, I'm sure you haven't yet seen it because I've only seen one copy of the newest edition of my book that's come out. There's a new chapter in there where we talk about making your own bales. And as part of that experiment over the past couple of years where I've been doing research, I have used some, some a few forks full of pine needles in a bale, incorporated in a bale. So if you mix it in with other materials, you know, I have some of last year's leftover straw bale that's sort of half decomposed, half collapsed. So I'll put a couple shovels of that in the bale, and I'll put a shovel full of pine needles, and maybe I'll use some, some trimmings off my lilac bushes that I trimmed, and then I'll put some the tulips that I pulled from the yard, the, the expired tulips, and I'll throw those in, and the, and the flowers left over from Valentine's Day and some vegetable peelings from the kitchen. I put them all in and compress this bale together, and I make my own bales that I can then use to grow my vegetable garden in. So it's like having a miniature compost pile all bound together inside this bale. For those people who don't have easy access to straw bales or hay bales, this is a really great alternative. And it provides a way for them to compost all of their yard materials and, and anything that they would normally put in a compost pile. Well, now tell me about, about compressing it. You live in farm country, so do you just use a regular baler? Or, and what would a homeowner do? Oh, you're going to get a kick out of this. In the book, I talk about, because I, I anticipated that exact problem, so over, the, over a period of uh, six months or so, I designed a very simple hand baler that people can make themselves. It costs about $15 to make, takes three two-by-sixes, and essentially it's a lever mechanism. It's a, a long-armed lever, so you use your own body weight, and by pushing down on it, it, it multiplies your body weight to squeeze this bale. And you can make the bales in essentially any large container. I tell people if you think about a big Rubbermaid bin that you put all your Christmas ornaments in or whatever, those big rubber bins that are 20 to 40 gallons, those work perfectly mm -hmm. for making a bale. So you lay some strings in the bottom of that tub, and then you fill it full of material, and you use this little lever mechanism that, that we show you, we designed, in, and there's instructions how to build it in the book. You squeeze down this bale real tight, and you tie those strings up over the top of the material that you squeeze down, and you have a really tightly compressed bale, even more tightly compressed than the ones that come out of the, of the regular farm baling machines. Um, so it, it compresses that material, which that's a key. That's really important. It has to be well compressed in order to get the fast decomposition that we're looking for. And also to keep it from falling apart, too, right? 
Right, yeah, bales will tend to, particularly they'll tend to tip over. A normal, typical-sized straw bale, if it's sitting up on edge in particular, um, halfway through the season, especially if you've got uh, water, excess water, I guess I'll call it, where you water the bales, but you tend to water them for a little bit too long, so the water runs out the bottom of the bale, it'll sort of carve a little hole in the bottom of the bale, and that bale will tend to tip over sideways. It's an easy fix. You just push a little board or something up against it and pound a stake in, and once you tip it upright for two weeks or so, it sort of settles on the bottom, and then you can take the board away, and it'll stay upright for the rest of the year. Um, but, yeah, tipping bales uh, is, a, is a common thing that happens, and, and usually that comes from just that people are, are overwatering a little bit. That's a, that's a good thing to know. Um, give my, uh, one of the questions that I had from our master gardeners was, um, can people use corn stalks to well, grow and like, chop them up and use your, your compost? Your, well, like make I your say, own? You, can, you can really use anything that will decompose. So corn stalks would work. Now, in Minnesota up here, we have lots of farmers that will make corn stalk bales. So mm-hmm. the entire bale is made out of corn stalks. And when you get an entire bale made out of corn stalks, it, it takes a long time to get that to start decomposing. So if I were going to use corn stalks, I would mix them in with some other material so that you get a little bit of you know fresh grass clippings from your yard and you get a little bit of trimmings from the tree and you get some food uh, peelings from the house and mix some corn stalks in with it. Now you're going to have a bale that has a, a bunch of different sources of organic material and you're going to get the best results from that. Just strict cornstalk bales, in Minnesota here at least, in our climate, you can use those, but you need to really start the conditioning in the fall in order to have that bale ready in the spring. So the timing is really difficult. What's really nice about our straw bales, our, our handmade bales, is we can get the timing down exactly right. So we start the process of conditioning two weeks before we plan to plant, and that gives us two weeks of bacteria growth inside that bale that, during that conditioning period. And two weeks later, that bale is going to be nice and toasty warm inside. For us, that's really important because our soil is still 40, 50 degrees, and this bale is 90 degrees. So we're going to put our tomatoes, we're going to transplant our, our cucumbers and our peppers into this bale that's 90 degrees inside instead of putting them into the soil at 50 degrees. makes a world of difference. That gives us two, three weeks head start on our gardening season. Now, do you have to condition? I mean, yes, it'd be a great idea for um, the warm season crops especially, but what could you just cut a hole in it and chop a hole, dump some potting mix in it and plant, like for the cool weather crops? Well, I'll tell you, you the conditioning process really involves more than, than just heating up the bales. What's happening during this time is we're, we're growing bacteria. And bacteria is what is going to break down the, the organic material, that straw or hay or whatever mix of materials you've used in your own bales. It's going to break that material down and turn it into soil or, or give off available nutrients. When we condition the bale, we're adding a source of nitrogen. If you're organic, this is going to be blood meal. works really well for this process. If you're a traditional gardener, it's going to be just using lawn fertilizer on the bale. And that fertilizer is not there to feed the plants because there's no plants in that bale yet. The fertilizer is there, nitrogen is there to feed the microbes. Now, this is part where, where people, you know, that you can't see microbes because they're microscopic. You know, you've got to have a microscope to see them. 
So we're going to feed them, and the only way we know they're there is that that bale gets nice and warm. And that's a sign that that bacteria is growing and replicating and colonizing that bale is that that bale warms up. So we definitely need to feed those microbes because if we don't feed the microbes, we're going to have to feed the plants all year long during the season. If we feed the microbes, the microbes begin to decompose the straw, and that's where the nutrients come from, particularly our micronutrients, to feed those plant roots that are going to develop later in the season. Um, so it is really important. You have to condition your bales. That's the number one thing I get um, in terms of people that are not successful is they'll contact me and they'll say, well, you know, I put my plants in the bales and they just withered. They don't look good. They're, they're yellow and they're kind of, they just don't, they're not thriving. And I ask, well, how did you condition the bales? And they'll say, well, what are you talking about? What does conditioning mean? And I say, aha, you missed a key step in the process. You have to condition those bales. Or if you don't, the microbes in the bale are going to suck all the nitrogen out of that potting mix that you put in there or out of the roots of the plant that you put into that bale. They're going to suck all the nitrogen out to feed themselves in order to colonize the bale. It's just nature's natural process. Um, they, they look for a source of food. For those that don't have your book yet, how do they condition? Because we have gardeners all over the country, and some of them are going to be planting pretty soon. Yep, how do they do that? How long does it take? It takes about two weeks. If you're organic, you should give yourself about three weeks. It just takes a little bit longer. If you're organic, you're going to use blood meal on the bale, and it's as simple as, you know, if you want to pound a couple holes in the bale, you can use a two-by-two two and a hammer to just punk some little plugs, holes down different depths. You know, a couple four-inch holes and a couple six-inch holes. Just punch 10 or 12 holes in the top of the bale so you can dump that blood meal right down in those holes. And then water it down in to the bale using a, a sprayer end of your garden hose. Water it down in. And that keeps the flies and things from accumulating on top of the bales. If you just lay blood meal on top of the bales, you're going to get some flies buzzing around because, of course, they're after that, that organic decomposing blood on top of the bales. Um, if you're a traditional gardener, you're going to use regular old lawn fertilizer, pour it on top of the bale, spray it down into the into the straw, and that activates, as soon as that nitrogen becomes available, it activates the bacteria inside that bale. They're already there. We don't need to add any bacteria. They're everywhere. All we need to do is feed them. And as soon as you feed them and water them, they start a party in there. They start to replicate, reproduce. And you'll see, even if you come back the next day, you'll see that bale has increased in temperature significantly. Well, how often do you have to fertilize it? Um, I like to see people do it so a little bit of application of fertilizer every other day um, during the period of the conditioning period. And then on the last day of conditioning, um, I like to see people add a source of phosphorus and potassium. Now, this can be, um, if you're organic, it can be a cup of bone meal and a cup of wood ashes will work well. Um, that'll give you, don't overdo it on, you know, if one cup is good but ten cups is better, that's not true. Just one cup of each per bale, and that'll provide all of the available phosphorus and potassium that your plants will need throughout the season, that, that essential element, one of our macronutrients that plants typically need. Um, and then just watch your plants throughout the season. If you see yellowing of leaves, if you see, you know, a purplish hue to your plants, you'll know that there's some nitrogen deficiency or phosphorus deficiency, and you can come back and add a liquid form, um, something that's quickly available source of, of nutrients to that plant. Okay, so it is, even though the wheat straw or whatever you're using is breaking down, they will still sometimes need to fertilize. I imagine that's especially important if you're 
got a crop that you're having to water pretty heavily. Or if you live here in the south where it's where it sometimes will rain every dang day for a month. Yeah, particularly nitrogen is very soluble. The rain will tend to wash it through the bale, wash it out of the bale, or your, your watering will tend to wash it away. So you just need to keep an eye on it, and if it, it looks like you need a little extra nitrogen, you just add a little spot here or spot there. So There are some nice organic liquid fertilizers out there, too, sure. if somebody is, is organic and wants to take a shortcut. They're not cheap. They're not as cheap as the chemically made stuff, but I find that they work really well, and they seem to be mm-hmm. very well balanced. Yeah, fish emulsion is a great one. I tell people, if you're going to put fish emulsion on your garden, wear an old T-shirt that you can throw away when you're done. It's about <laughs> so bad. It's horrible. Well, it's, it's about on par, par with blood meal, I think. Yes, yeah, it does yeah, stink exactly. quite a bit. Yeah. We're going to have to take a little break now. Um, but when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about um, how uh, how people can cut into the bales. And we had a, I had a whole slew of questions from our master gardeners. So I'd like to talk to you about that. And just as a reminder... I'm talking to Joel Carson, author of Straw Bale Gardens, and we'll be back right after this. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Polis, and my guest today is Joel Karsten, the author of Straw Bale Gardening. And right before the break, we were talking about conditioning the bales and getting them ready to plant. And somebody, a couple of people have had trouble, you know, even getting into the bale and wanted to know another way to do that. Now, my husband is kind enough to take out my bulb auger that I used to use when I would plant bulbs all around the yard, and it attaches to an electric drill, and that does a great job. Yeah, but if somebody imagine. doesn't have that, what else do I they use? Well, you know what I tell people is just the simplest way, believe it or not, is just use a pliers. A regular home pliers works really well. You jam the, the grips down into the bale, and you pull out one or two chunks of straw, just rip it out of the bale, and once you've started a little hole and loosened it up, you know, then you'll be surprised at how easy it is to reach your fingers in there, and you just remove a little bit of straw until you get a hole big enough to put that plug down into the bale, your, your transplant of your tomato or whatever you're putting into that bale. Um, that makes it really easy. Just remove enough straw, 
And But to get it started, you're right, sometimes those bales can be pretty tough. Until they begin to really soften up and, and get squishy, if uh, you know, a month or so into the season, you're going to see it's hard to get a hole sometimes started, especially if you get what I call the highly compressed bales. So you bought them from a farmer and, you, you know, you went to carry them home and they were really heavy to get home. That means there's a lot of straw inside that bale. It's highly compressed. That's difficult to plant because you got to make the holes in there, but it's also a good thing because it means your bales are typically going to last a second season. So a lot of times you can get two years out of that big heavy bale where the real light flimsy bales that aren't squeezed so tight, those you're really only going to get one season out of. They're much easier to dig a hole in, but you're only going to get one season out of those. Ah, and that's also a tip for one of our master gardeners asked. Um, they had done a project for senior citizens, and, of course, they raised them up a couple of bales, maybe two, three bales high, so that they wouldn't have to bend over. Mm-hmm. And they had problems with it collapsing. Yeah. So that yeah, would I... be the key then, that they had a maybe the bales weren't very tight, so they should go looking for the 75-pounders, even though those, yeah. those are terribly hard to lift. Yeah, they're, even though they're heavy, they're, they're probably your best bet. And I would also encourage them, instead of stacking one bale on top of another bale, try this. Try putting down about, depending on how high you want to get, about five or six empty pallets. Pallets you can get anywhere, you know, behind the grocery mm-hmm. store. There's pallets pallet piled up everywhere. Put down six or seven pallets, and then with a flat surface on the top of that pallet, um, what we call a full pallet on the top, and then put two bales or three bales, I guess, will fit on a pallet, three bales next to each other. Now you've got a garden that's raised up almost to chest height. So you talk about easy to pick um, strawberries, things that are low crops that normally you'd have to bend over. It makes it really easy. We call it a, a pallet garden, um, it, you know, straw bales on top of a pallet. It makes it really, really simple to do. And I actually I didn't create that idea. I had an audience member. I was giving a presentation two springs ago, and I had an older gentleman come up to me and said, i got to show you some pictures of what I did. And he showed me how he did it. And so the following year, I tried it, and it, it did, does work really well. So. That, and, and pallets are usually free for the taking. Yeah, exactly. If yeah. you ask, because a lot of people want to get rid of them. And I've yeah. found I give away pallets on occasion on FreeCycle, mm-hmm. um, which is there are several recycling groups where people will offer them if they have, you know, get a shipment and they have no use for them. It's a bit better that than having them just busted up and, and trashed. Yeah, if you're patient, you know, you can find pallets for free. If you're desperate and you got to go, you got to have them tomorrow morning, well, that's a little different story. Then you're probably going to have to pay 3 or $4 a piece. But if, you, if you're patient, you can always get them for free. And, and the pallets aren't going to break down over the season? No, the pallets are, are fine. You know, the rain will run through them. And, you know, they're, usually they're made out of some, uh, you know, sort of a waste wood material, um, you know, cheap pine or whatever. And over a long period of time being outside, over several years, I'm sure they'd start to decompose. But, um, you know, over a period of a, a season or two or three seasons, they're not going to decompose. That's a good thing to know. I know that I've had pallets before I decided to give them away. They were out in the yard for probably three or four years, and they were fine, but they didn't have that constant moisture or the bacteria on top of it working yep. on it. Yeah. So that makes it that makes a difference. Okay, so um, we talked about bales that fall apart, and you said that the best thing to do is on you know on, on single on the ground is to put a board next to them. And you said you can take the board away after a while. 
Yeah, what happens is when you when you push the bale upright, sort of tip it up straight, um, what's happening underneath the bale, if you look carefully, is it'll sort of be carved out on one side underneath the bale, and that's where your water's coming, down through the bale, and then the water has to exit one direction or the other, and it comes out that direction. So it sort of carves a little, almost like a little indentation underneath the bale. As soon as you tip it back upright um, and sort of force that bale to stand upright, the water will accumulate under there, but it'll take the other side out as well. So it sort of evens off the bottom of the bale, and the bale settles straight down again. And and usually what I've seen is after two or three weeks, I can come back out there and pull the board because I'll, I'll have another bale across the garden that's tipping over, so I'll pull the board from this one and I'll put it next to the other one. And it, within uh, two weeks or so, they're usually standing upright for the rest of the year. You don't need to worry about them. So. That's a good thing to know. Now, in our climate, we also, you know, like I said, it can sometimes rain and rain and rain. And some of our master gardeners have had problems with um, the bales just decomposing a little too fast. Is there anything they can do about that other than looking for those really heavy bales? Well, you know, if you get a bale that's starting to, to decompose and it's starting to expose roots, if it's not exposing roots, it's really not hurting anything. I mean, the roots are going are gonna to be inside the bale, and as the bale collapses, the roots sort of collapse down as well. But if you start to get exposed roots, now I would encourage them to take a, you know, if you've got a, a bale that's already done for the season, you've got a crop that's been harvested out of that bale, or you've got some leftover bale from last year, take a couple handfuls and just sprinkle to make sure that those roots aren't exposed to the air, because, you know, that's going to be the damaging part. The damage that's going to occur to the plants is going to come from exposed roots. So just by sprinkling a little bit of straw or mulch or something over the top of those roots so that they're not exposed, you'll solve that problem. So it's a you know it's a collapsing bale is a good sign. It means it's decomposing, and that decomposing bale you can interpret as available nutrients. You know, as it's decomposing, it's turning into soil, and that's giving off your your free nutrients that can be then absorbed by the plant. So it's a good thing. Yeah, that's that's a good thing to know because you know here in our our climate, um, we can start planting potatoes in February when most of the north is under several feet of snow and below zero. And we can garden. I picked my last tomato um, this year in November, November 18th. And some years we can go into December, but this was one of those fuller years where in November it got down to 19 degrees, which is really unusual for us. It got down to 19 even before Thanksgiving. So we have a very, very long growing season. Now, in a case where people are living, say, in Florida or here in Georgia, is there one straw that's better than the other for um, that? Well, I'll tell you, most of my people I hear from in Florida and, and Georgia are using hay alternative because they find it much harder to, to get a hold of straw than than hay. Hay bales, grass hay in Florida in particular grows everywhere. You know, grass is everywhere, so they, there's pastures that get baled up all the time, and, and they end up defaulting and using hay um, as a second great alternative. Uh, but if you're looking for straw bales, the best straw bales to find, you know, if you're living in central uh, United States and you have your option, you have your druthers of what you can choose, is oat straw. tends to work the very best. Um, wheat straw, close second. Barley straw, I would say, is a close second also to, to oat straw. But oat straw just works really well. Rice straw works pretty well, but it's got a high carbon content. It tends to decompose a little bit slower than oat straw does. Um, so oh, that could be an really advantage, good. though, if you fertilize 
Because it wouldn't be breaking down as fast, right? Yeah, it would it'd take a little bit longer to decompose. We, there's always that fine line. You want it to decompose fast enough to give off nutrients, but you don't want it to decompose so fast that your bales tip over and, you know, you get all the other problems that come with it. Um, but, you know, oat straw, I would say, is number one. And then if you can't find a source of straw, default to hay. Only because hay is a little coarser, doesn't hold moisture quite as well. Now, keep in mind, when you're gardening in a bale, you're, you're sort of above-ground gardening. So even if you overwater, like you were talking about getting rain every day sometimes in the spring, mm-hmm. that excess moisture is going to run right out the bottom of that bale. So it'll, it'll saturate the bale, and it'll fill the bale up with water, but then any excess water, what we call gravitational water, just runs out the bottom of the bale. So it's really impossible to drown a vegetable garden that's planted in straw bales. They'll, they'll drain right out. The water, excess water drains right out the bottom. Uh, it doesn't take any more water for our kind of garden, a straw bale garden, than it does a traditional garden. Um, but it, it typically takes more frequent watering. So I tell people, plan to water every day, but just a smaller amount. You know, you don't need much water per bale. A gallon during the season, maybe a gallon and a half if you've got a real heavy juicer, tomato or something on that bale, um, a couple gallons of water. But more often, rather than more volume, just smaller, uh, shorter length of time, but more frequently. I'm a big fan of drip or soaker irrigation. Um, and there are a couple of companies out there that, that sell kits, and then there are others that you can just get your own. Um, do you like that method, too? Oh, it's absolutely perfect. You're, you're absolutely right on the, on the track of what works best for straw bale gardening. A soaker hose... Um, is a great method, uh, but a, a drip system is even better because now I can have three different volume consumers in one bale, and by one plant I can put a two-gallon per hour, and the other plant I can put a half-a-gallon per hour emitter, and it makes I can run at the same length of time, and both plants get the optimum amount of moisture for that particular plant. So drip irrigation is the best. But what really makes the system work well is if you have an automated timer that runs your irrigation because now you don't even have to be home. You don't have to remember. You don't have to remind your neighbor or your kid, hey, stop by and water the garden because it's already taken care of. And these little automatic timers, you put a battery in them, you set the program at the beginning of the season, and it waters it for you every morning all year long. Really works slick. I love the timers in part because I'm, for, I'm a forgetful gardener too, and I will set a hose on and then forget to turn it off. And with the timer, I don't have to worry about turning it on or turning it off. It's all done. Yeah. The only thing you have to worry about is, you know, if you get those spells of 100-degree weather, you might have to adjust the settings a little bit so that it right. works more often. Increase your but, frequency. Yep, exactly. Now, what happens when people don't water enough? Well, if you, you know, like any garden, you're going to see wilting right away if, you're not getting, if the plants aren't getting enough water. So there's usually a, a telltale sign, that droopiness, that sort of wilting character to the, to the plants in the garden. And it just means, you know, your garden is not going to perform nearly as well. Um, but more frequent and less volume is what I tell people. That's why the, those little timers are so key. I'll be putting the information. I'll put up some links to your book, of course, and to the timers and the drip irrigation stuff for people on our Facebook page. I was just wondering if there was any problem with re-wetting the bale afterwards or getting the microbes done if you've, you know, if you've gone away um, for a week or so and you forgot to set the timer. That's a, an interesting thing. We'll talk about that when we come back from this break. Do your children know where their food comes from? 
At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com. The best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Polis, and my guest today is Joel Karsten, the author of Straw Bale Gardening. So we have pretty well solved most of the mysteries. And one of the things that I was, one of the questions I had was somebody had gotten a bale, they'd gone away, and they didn't get it watered when they were gone. And then they had trouble getting it restarted. Is that typical, or is that just some kind of aberration? Well, it's kind of like a sponge. You know, there's that um, that characteristic where it, it's hard sometimes to get it started getting wet, but once you get it wet, it tends to hold moisture for a long time. Um, so if the bale got really dried out, it becomes, what do they call it, hydrophobic, where it doesn't want to absorb water easily. But, you know, if you let it, particularly a drip system or a soaker system, let it run on that bale for a long period of time. If you just try to spray the bale with your, with your hand water, it can be hard to get the water to penetrate. But if you let it drip on there real nice and slow, it'll re-wet, and then you'll be back in business again. So um, slow and steady watering is what I tell people. They, they, I get this question a lot. Can I just water my garden by hand every day? And I say, you know, you have the best of intentions, and I really appreciate that. Everybody thinks that this is going to be fun. They're going to go out there and water their garden every day. But halfway through the year, you're going to you're going to forget a day or you're going to be gone for a couple of days and your garden's not going to get water. So put the, put, spend the $15 to get the soaker hose or the $25 to set up a little drip system with the timer and then it's taken care of. And if you want to go out and water by hand, you know, that's great. Um, you can set your timer to go off tomorrow instead of today and you can water today by hand. But this way there's always a backup. There's always a default in place. And it's always best to set up this drip or soaker system before you try to plant, too. Yes, or on planting day or soon thereafter, exactly. It, it works best because otherwise your plants are growing everywhere and then you got to feed the hose in between all your growing plants. So, 
and you're likely to snap off that tomato plant that you very lovingly grown and planted. Oh. I've been there, done that. Yeah, that would be <laughs> well, terrible. Wait, do you have any problems um, with rats or mice or anything getting into the bales? Well, you know, a rat or a mouse is looking for a nice dry place to, ha you know, make a home and have their babies, and they're looking for a source of food. Well, certainly you're growing food in this garden, so... You know, if you have existing mice or rats in your neighborhood, they're not going to be any more attracted to a straw bale garden than they are a traditional garden, and they're not going to want to make a house in a bale of straw that's soaking wet. You know, it's, uh, I tell people, if you woke up in a hotel room and, and in the morning it was dripping on your head, you'd move out in a hurry. And the same thing happens with a mouse or a rat. They're going to try to make a house in there, but every morning they're going to get water dripping down on their head. They're not going to stick around. So I, no more mice or rat problems in a straw bale garden than you'd have in a traditional soil garden. Okay. How about ants, especially down here in the south? We have fire ants. I don't yes. think they live up in your neck of the woods. I think it's too cold no. for them. But I have heard stories. I get lots of email questions, and I have to default to other people who've dealt with the issue, you know, how you use organic controls to control fire ants in a normal garden, um, you're going to use the same basic techniques and methods in a straw bale garden. So, you know, I've heard the boiling water um, and uh, what is it? Is it grit? The, the, best, the best thing that I have found um, is to use bait around the perimeter of the garden. Okay. And then they take the bait back to their mound, which is usually starts out outside the garden, and they are no more. And there are some baits that are considered reasonably safe. Grits don't work. Okay. It, it, that's, well, that's one of those myths. <laughs> okay. Uh, I go off of the wives' tales that I hear then. So. Yeah, that, that's one of those old wives' tales that doesn't work. And boiling water is really good, except that it does harm the microbes. And um, I know from also from experience that it can harm you pretty good when you accidentally sure. spill it on yourself, as well as killing the plants if you've got it. But if you've con started conditioning your bale and the ants have moved in because you had a little dry spell or you didn't get it watered quite enough, then you can use the water to get them out. And one other tip that I know of that you can pass along is that if you have to bust open a bale that, you know, like at the end of the season that ha is infested with fire ants, if you put some talcum powder on the handle of your shovel, they can't run up that handle and bite oh, you. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> We we had we, we were one of the first neighborhoods in our area to get fire ants that apparently came in on the heavy road construction um, equipment, and so we've had to deal with them for a long time. And I've you know, there's not, it's not fun to go out in your garden and be standing there barefooted and have fire ants. And for those of you that don't know fire ants the lucky people, fire ants will gather in a group, and you don't notice them until the, they give the signal to bite all at once. Attack, yeah. Yeah, so then you'll have five or six or ten or fifteen fire ants on your feet and on your legs and things like that, and they all bite. Now, a lot of people have trouble with deer, and I imagine it's no different in a straw bale garden. No, not a lot different. You know, you still got to use the deer prevention. One of the best things I've found for deer, we had a lot of problems with deer on our home farm when I grew up. We would have herds of 25, 30 deer that would come through. And what tend to, what I eventually turned to are motion sensor sprinklers. Have you ever tried one of those? Scarecrows. I love scarecrows. 
sure. They work really well. You know, that deer walks in front of it. The trick to these sprinklers is you got to put them up before you plant anything. Real early in the spring, like for us, right when our tulips are just starting to poke their heads above ground, that's when I set out my scarecrow sprinklers. And now any rabbit or raccoon or, you know, deer or neighbor kid that walks in front of that sprinkler, they get splashed with, with cold water. And it reminds them, don't come in this area. You know, this is a protected area. Now when you get your bales and you get your garden started, they're used to not walking through that area. So the deer have found a different path and, the, you know, the rabbits are, are looking for food somewhere else. And you tend to at least prevent them from finding your garden and sort of becoming comfortable with that buffet every night. Because once a deer knows you've got beautiful pea sprouts coming up and lettuce coming up, they're going to come back every night because it's like a buffet for them. So then you really got to fight them with fencing and with, you know, all the other things. But if you just prevent it early, that, that seems to work best, at least for me. That's the best result I've had. That's a good tip because once they get habituated, you're right, they're persistent. They will yeah. go. And I first discovered the Scarecrow Sprinkler at a trade show, and somebody had it set up with an acrylic panel so that the sensor could see, sense the motion, but you didn't get wet, and you walk past that thing, and all of a sudden, boom, there's yeah. a big pile of water, and, and everybody, you know, that went jumped. up just jumped a mile. Yeah. So yeah, you, you can imagine. Good liability insurance if you're going to do that. <laughs> Give people a heart well, <laughs> well, it certainly is startling, and, and yeah, I know sure. that it's worked, that, that they've worked really well for other people. And I think Scarecrow might have been one of the first, um, mm-hmm. and they make mini crows now, too. Yeah, there are several uh, different, you know, if you just Google for motion sensor sprinkler, there's several different manufacturers. I happen to prefer the Scarecrow, and, and that's the one I use, but there are several of them out there now. I think the technology has become pretty widely uh, used in that industry. So, Okay. Another problem that people have where they've got a lot of wet is slugs. How do you deal with slugs? Well, you know, I use all the typical methods that people recommend. And and usually for us, slugs are a problem maybe one every five or six or seven years. You know, they're not a persistent issue. (laughs) So it's on a really wet spring where you get the right conditions, then we'll have, you know, bad slug problems. Um, And, you know, I put a board down in the pathways between my rows of bales, and in the morning you flip that board over and there'll be 100 slugs underneath it. And I gather them up and put them in a in a baggie and get rid of them um i'll use you know halves of oranges and grapefruits and and lemons on top of the bales whatever we've got and under those rinds they'll accumulate under there um a few baby jars with some flat beer in it seems to work pretty well um and then if you actually walk your garden you know my grandma was a big fan of this she would walk her garden every morning and and she watered by hand all the plants in her garden so as she walked the garden she would look for problems she'd look for potato bugs she'd look for slugs and just physically removing them is a is a great method you know you'd think well how can you get enough of them you'd be surprised if you get good at finding them you walk that garden for 15 minutes in the morning and you can get 75 100 slugs out of the garden it didn't take take very many mornings and and they're population is down significantly so physical control. and that that works a lot better i've got a friend that lives in the pacific northwest she she goes out at night with scissors and a flashlight and she cuts them in half <laughs> leaves the bodies lay there so all the other ones get the message i, I guess i, I don't know. 
But you're right. Going out there and getting, especially before they reproduce, whatever a critter is. You mentioned potato bugs, and they're not a problem here. But I remember when I was a kid in the Midwest, we would go. I would go out with my grandmother in the morning, and we would pick uh, pick them all off, and mm-hmm. then we we look for the eggs. Mm-hmm. And if we'd find the eggs, we would dispose of them. Yep, exactly. And just, squash just bugs. Yeah. yeah. Do you use any chemicals in your garden other than the fertilizer? I don't. I don't use anything. Um, for years, I put up the. Uh, we have. I don't know if you guys have the problem uh, with the Japanese beetles down there, but we have these mm-hmm. Japanese beetles that will come in for about a period of two or three weeks in the summer. Uh huh. And I used to put up traps for these Japanese beetles, and I would get a whole, you know, a gallon of these Japanese beetles every day. But then. After a couple of years of that, I talked to an entomologist over at the University of Minnesota, and he said, you know, you're probably attracting all of the bugs from all your neighbor's yards to coming to your traps because they're a pheromone trap. And he said, you're probably not helping the, the issue at all in your garden. So I just stopped using those a few years ago. And, you know, it felt good to throw a whole bunch of these bugs in the garbage every day, but it wasn't really helping my garden at all. So <laughs> I figure if you, even if you give up 5 or 10% to the bugs and the deer and the rabbits and other things, you know, you just have a healthy garden, something that's, you know, you can outgrow any of your problems. Uh, you're going to produce enough that you can afford to give up 5 or 10% to the bad guys, and that way you don't have to bring in a lot of chemicals and, and treat all your, your garden with those. So. And because you're growing in straw bales, you have a few fewer problems anyway because you don't have, like, the corn rootworms and stuff exactly. like that, do you? Yeah, you don't, you don't have the soil-borne issues that are already in the soil and you have to worry about for the next season. So it certainly does make a difference. Now, I'm glad to hear that you don't use chemicals in the garden because so many people just freak at the sight of a bug and, um, and and take action. You know, the old slit gun mentality that we had in the 50s. Well, you don't know. You wouldn't remember that. But I'm sure some of our listeners would, where everything was, you know, take out a can and spray. And really and truly, we can do it without it. Now, for those of you that are on Facebook, I'm going to put all these links on Facebook, um, talking about the scarecrow and Joel's book and things like that. If you have any questions, I'm sure Joel will be happy to pop by and answer for you. If you're not on Facebook and you have a question, you can email it to me through America's Web Radio um, or through my website, which is mrsgreenthumb.com, and we'll get your questions answered. We're about out of time, Joel. Well, do you I have to but... thank you very much for the opportunity to be on your show. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it well, very much. Well, I had a good time, and a lot of people had so many questions about straw bale gardening that I wanted to make sure that we got them answered. And because people can get straw just about any time of the year and get planting. Joel, um, do you have a website that people straw can go Garden, to? Strawbalegardens.com. Strawbalegardens.com. Yep. Thanks so much for being with us, Joel. Um, I'm so glad that you were here, and I, maybe we can do this again sometime. Yeah, maybe our paths will cross again down the road. Who knows? Okay. Thank you. That's all the time we have this week. But we'll be back with America's Homegrown Veggie Show next week. I hope you'll join us. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.